Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 24, where we're traveling back to 1966 and the 21st winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, Leslie Bassett, for his variations for orchestra. So, Andrew, uh, tell me, what, what are your thoughts? Uh, do, are you a big, big Leslie Bassett fan? Do you have a lot of his music, or were you familiar with him? Well, I think we're back. You know, we've had this period of composers that are household names, at least among people who follow classical music. Leslie Bassett is not. <laughs> no, no. Right, we're back to Gail Kubik and John LaMontagne. We're back to that level of composer who had a, a big career. But in some ways, um, to me, he's more like Walter Piston in that it seems like his legacy now is as a teacher more than as a composer. I only know him for wind band works because mm. he still gets performed um, shapes, uh, sound shapes and symbols. That's the one I've uh, heard before. So that's where I know him from. I hadn't before this heard a lick of any of his music outside of those wind band pieces. Interesting. Yeah. I, what about you? Pretty pretty similar. I, I knew him as one of the two composers that were really associated with the University of Michigan with William Albright and Leslie Bassett and Bolcom. Actually, the three of them. Uh, Bolcom. They were kind of the Michigan composers. I'd heard first heard his name uh, because he wrote a horn sonata. And I have a copy of it, but I never played it because it was pretty hard. So I never, I don't know, never decided to tackle it. But as far as hearing a note of his music, no, I, I had not heard a thing. So this is all new to me. And he, I think as we you know, get into his background, it's kind of interesting. He's not, in most ways, he's really not like a lot of our other composers. He's not from the same pedigree or the same teaching protege of so-and-so who already won two years ago. Uh, he's kind of not in that group. So I think that's maybe something worthwhile. Yeah, he's not in that kind of uh, New England mafia right, that we've right. seen that's been controlling the Pulitzer for so many years. I think we talked about this last episode that 1965 is like this, uh, this Sashura, if we're going to use our <laughs> music terms here, but everything's going to change after 1965. And Leslie Bassett winning, I think, is a, a clear symbol that things were going to change in the Pulitzer moving forward as we move into 1966. And it's just going to continue in an interesting trajectory as we move into the late 60s into the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like everything else in music, like we talked about in the previous episode. So should we uh, talk a little bit about Leslie Bassett's background and who he was? So Bassett is one of these interesting guys that uh, did a little bit of everything. <laughs> he was a trombonist, he was a cellist, he was a pianist, but he really kind of taught himself to play a ton of different instruments as a kid. So he basically had this huge background in instrumental music that I think kind of helped propel him into composition. And especially band music, which makes a lot of sense. Especially band music. You can see why he was drawn to it. Absolutely. So born 1923, died 2016, so very long life. Uh, He studied, he's from uh, California, so that's also kind of different. Uh, Fresno State University, then with Ross Lee Finney, another Michigan composer, and did take some lessons with Nadia Boulanger, and later studied music with Davidovsky, who we'll come back to in a few years. So kind of uh, 
an academic in the same way as a lot of our other composers, but with different background. I think Piston, for example, had the pedigree. He was shaped by Boulanger and that milieu, uh, whereas Bassett seems, you know, California, Midwestern, a little bit off the, the beaten path. Yeah, he doesn't have any of that New England pedigree. In fact, he does his master's at Michigan. He gets into the army because yeah. it was World War II, and he does arranging. He's, he goes as a trombone player, does arranging, and so gets that experience during his army years during World War II. Goes back to Fresno, where he teaches high school, I think it was, before he gets hired at Michigan, and they say, come teach at Michigan, and you can get your doctorate at the same time. Yeah, good deal. Which never happened. <laughs> how that happened. Great deal. So that's how he ended up on the faculty of Michigan. He got his doctorate there, and they said, stick around, and then remained there until, I think, 1991 when he finally retired from the faculty. So a very long career teaching at Michigan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So interesting background. Now, as the as we get into this piece, as we're going to tell the story about this piece, uh, whether it's as interesting as his background, we'll have to decide here. So maybe we should tell the story. Telling the story. So where does this piece come from? Well, uh, you have the score. I do, I do actually have the score. And it says the variations for orchestra constitute the last work composed during my two years as holder of the Prix de Rome at the American Academy in Rome, 1961 to 63. So, okay, that's that's a big honor to win the Prix de Rome. Begun in late November of 62 and composed the following May, the variations took shape with the sounds of the Radio Orchestra of Rome in my ears. So uh, he wrote it when he was in Italy and when he had the Prix de Rome, Rome Prize. Which is a huge honor and was one of the first, if you look at kind of the awards that people list out, you know, you go to the Grove Dictionary and they say, here's Leslie Bassett and they list all the awards. Prix de Rome is always the first one they list, followed by the Pulitzer Prize. And so these two things, I think, feed into each other. And it gave him, I think, a bit of cachet for the Pulitzer Committee to look at this and go, oh, here's a Prix de Rome winner written on his Prix de Rome year. That gives it a little bit of, a, I think, a boost in their esteem. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As well, the, the type of piece that it is. So a big 23-minute orchestral piece, and it's variations for orchestra. And we should say it's not... It, it's. A different kind of variations. I think that may be something that's, uh, I don't know if it's unique about it, but it's it's not on a theme, for example. So right. it's based more, as he puts it, the variations are not based upon a theme. The opening motivic introduction consists of far, four small areas or phrases, each of which is more memorable as color or mood than as theme, and each of which serves in some respect as the source of one or more variations. So to me, this is the thing to remember about Bassett is he is very much, well, I don't want to call him a texturist, but he's very much interested in color and timbre and texture in his music than he is in melody or in lyricism or any of the kind of traditional things we have seen in the Pulitzer. He's very much in a different way. And to kind of go back to the band music and stuff, what I know, uh, his first band piece is called Designs, Images, and Textures. (laughs) And he has another one called Colors and Contours. So if you look, I mean, the titles are very abstract. Yeah, It's not like he's writing, you know, Appalachian Spring or Camp Meeting or any of the other great Pulitzer winners that we've seen. He's writing something, variations for orchestra, very abstract in the title. 
And then even as it plays out, it's very abstract. Yes. And the musical language is also very abstract. For the most part, it's, it's primarily uh, what I call atonal, or there's some sections that are 12-tone, um, kind of a mixture of different things. But I'd say generally, the, the like, like Bassett says, the motivic, it's, it's based not on melody particularly or based on any sort of memorable theme. It's more of a, a kind of a wash. Uh, at least when I was listening to it, I felt like I was hearing a lot of different tone colors, uh, a lot of glissandi and the kinds of things right. with, with lots of uh, tinkly percussion and celeste and stuff like that. So it's really about color. And I, I was thinking of the the Schoenberg five pieces for orchestra with the Farben, the, that where Schoenberg has the one chord and he just keeps changing the colors on it the whole time. It sort of reminded me of that, although it's much more, this is not static. It has a lot of different sections, but uh, yeah. It, he said, I don't know what you think of this. He said he wanted to write a large, powerful single movement work that would place the listener in the midst of a form he could perceive yet at the same time involve him in the gradual unfolding of a thematic motivic web that would require his most thoughtful attention. Does that? <laughs> that was not my that experience. Not... <laughs> <laughs> I see where he's getting that, yeah. but that was not my experience at all. No, no. So maybe it's time that we begin to go a little bit behind the notes here. Behind the notes. All right, so... As I kind of alluded to, <laughs> when we think about variations, we typically think, oh, I'm going to hear a theme, and we'll hear how that theme changes. That is not going to be your experience of this piece in any way. I thought it would be useful for us just to play the opening, roughly the opening minute of the piece, so you can kind of get a sense of the sound world, but also know what you're... It gives you a sense of what you're going to be in for. So let's listen a little bit to the opening. So we're definitely not in Kansas anymore with that opening. No. We are not anywhere near <laughs> anything else we've heard from the Pulitzer board that they wanted to award. This is a very, this is like a right turn. That's actually, yeah, coming to think of it, that's very true. Uh, it's very abstract, very, uh, not, not, not spectral. What's the word? It's sort of I mean, just textual, I guess, or textural. Uh, it, yeah. It's, yeah, very much. You lose, there's no sense of time, just kind of seems like events, gestural. Maybe that's what I'm looking for. Very gestural. That's a great yeah. word. And it doesn't have this sense that we've seen the, the Pulitzer board before this time really wanted to award, it seems like, um, this idea of Americana. Yeah. And this is, going back to maybe Barber and Minotti, <laughs> those are the two that we've heard who have not been, been the least American. And in that way, it, it does fall into that tradition that it sounds very European in fact, to me, earlier you mentioned Schoenberg. That's exactly yes. what I was hearing when I first started listening to this piece. I thought, this is just Schoenberg written over. So I thought it'd be useful to hear a little bit of <laughs> how to me it sounds like Schoenberg. Or maybe warmed over. 
warmed over. It is warmed over Schoenberg, yeah. especially if you consider this was written in the 1960s and it sounds like a Schoenberg piece from the 1920s. Uh, so maybe we can listen a little bit to this. those pizzicato it's, strings yep. little da 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 that, that just just screams Schoenberg to me Schoenberg and Webern I would say too and the, Webern the kind of pointillistic the, the plucky stuff uh, very kind of that well it's that that late the 12 tone Schoenberg orchestra writing the variations for orchestra is that what you were, was that what it was or it was the variation yeah, yeah. it's it's the five orchestral pieces oh. that I was kind of hearing in my head mm-hmm. uh, when I was listening to this yeah so it's clear that at least clear from our listening of it that Bassett knew his Schoenberg and knew his second Viennese school, uh, at least in the orchestration. But it isn't a serial piece. No, not just parts of it are, not all of it. Exactly. It just happens to have that, that flavor. And I think because of the, the very chromatic language, uh, I read a interview with Bassett and he was talking about how he would be writing and he would realize, oh, I've written 10 notes and the next two are completing the chromatic scale <laughs> and it just seems natural to his ear. That's where his ear kind of went. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, if composing were only that easy. I don't know, just to, to, just right completing the aggregate like that, just filling it out. Uh, but I don't know. It's uh, I can't say that the piece is particularly engaging in that way because even though there are different, I don't know how many variations there are. I think is it uh, seven or. Well, it's very sectional. It's, so when there's you move eight, from, it looks like eight in a conclusion. When you move yeah. from variation to variation, there is actually a small yes. pause, and you move to the next one. And between those pauses, it is unified by the sounds that you're hearing, the textures that he's creating. Mm-hmm. So you can tell when you're moving from variation to variation. So in that way, when he says, "You hear the unfolding," yes, you can tell that it's variations and they're big sections. How those sections are related one to another, very difficult just to grasp by ear. Yeah. Yeah. And I think as a listener, it's hard to, for me, I found it hard to keep attention uh, with this piece, which is sort of, I think you described it as a wash in a way. It just, it doesn't really, there's not much to grab onto. And I'm, you know, I'm fine. I listen to a lot of non-abstract music that doesn't have anything to latch onto, but this seemed particularly ephemeral or it seemed particularly Mm -hmm. kind of floaty. I couldn't really get what was going on too well. Well, I had to go back to it this morning because it had been about a week since I kind of dug into it and re-listened to it. So I went back this morning because I I couldn't, if you had asked me to describe <laughs> it, I don't know if I could have this morning before listening to it again. So that kind of ephemeral nature, I completely agree. It just doesn't have anything to to grab onto. And I think that's because our training is melody and rhythm and harmony. Sure. And all those things are stripped away. And in its place, he's put timbre and texture which is fascinating, but it's harder for our ears to kind of grasp onto. It is, it is. And I think, you know, I wonder how this went over because it was uh, premiered in 
the United States, the first premiere was by Eugene Ormandy and the Philadelphia Orchestra in 1965. And I'd be very... But that wasn't the first performance. No, that was the first American performance of it. Yeah, it was first performed yeah, in, Rome in Rome because of that Prix de Rome. So it, I would be curious to know what the Italian response oh, yeah, was yeah. at that time, because I'm sure it was uh, probably more engaging to an Italian audience because of the landscape of European music at the time versus the landscape of American music in the mid-1960s. Definitely, definitely, because it does have that more European ethos around it, for sure. So, All right, so let's see if it's a hit or a miss. Hit or miss. All right, well, should we uh, dig into what the, the reviews were and what the board said? Always. Always. Okay. Well, we've got uh, our friend Miles Kastendiek at the helm here, uh, fresh off the controversial 1965 No Winner. And let's see what they had to say. Uh, Dear Mr. Hohenberg, the report to the committee is enclosed, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and there, he mentions a little bit actually about the, it's a new jury, because remember, the previous jurors quit uh, because of in protest from the Duke Ellington situation. Quite the scandal. Yes, quite the scandal. So we have a new Two one. Two years of not having a winner. Mm-hmm. And so it looks like the board was trying to make up for that because Miles Kastendick says, you are most kind to suggest drinks and dinner uh, with the new, yeah, with the new board here. Mr. Hume, that would be Paul Hume, and I took the hint and had a couple of drinks at the faculty club but we did not have time to linger over dinner. Mr. Ward had another engagement. And so Robert Ward was the third member for previous winner. And so looks like they're trying to wine and dine the, the Pulitzer board after that debacle. But the drinks may have something to do with what they picked. <laughs> go ahead, good, go ahead. Okay, good point. Good. <laughs> well, let's see. So here's what they said. The music jury takes pleasure in nominating Leslie Bassett's variations for orchestra. The work received its U.S. premiere. Nothing else about it. No comments about the piece. Just when it was premiered. The so this makes me wonder if they were hedging their bets by not giving any information to mm. the board to then overturn them. Interesting. Well, they it could be. They did give a, a runner-up. was Hugo Weisgall's Soldier's Songs. Don't know that one. Uh, but the choice was made from a group of seven works selected from a field of over 30. And then the best part here is his last sentence. We are happy that at no time was there a question of not giving an award. So the, clearly this is really fascinating how that whole the last previous couple of years had really affected the Pulitzer board and the, the music award. So and. For so many years, that, pull, that the music jury had complete carte blanche to do what they want and award what they want. And you have them passing it around yeah. <laughs> to the various members. Like, oh, it's good old Walter Piston's turn. And now we're going to pass it off. Right? That's yeah. kind of how they were operating. And it seems now they're being much more circumspect in how they're operating and how they're communicating to the Pulitzer board because they've had their ideas overturned twice mm -hmm. and it's even more fascinating that the premiere of the concert uh, premiere of the variations for orchestra were was on the same half as another pulitzer prize winner we've talked about 
the Barber Concerto for Piano and Orchestra. It was the second piece on the concert. After the what, what a way to start this concert here. You've got the Bassett Variations, then the Barber Piano Concerto with John Browning, and then Sibelius. Which was Second the Symphony. last, that was the last Pulitzer winner yeah. that had happened. Yeah. Because you had the Barber, and then two years of no winner, and now Leslie Bassett. So fascinating that they're basically back-to-back winners, mm-hmm. although they're separated by three years. And this concert was dedicated to the 20th anniversary of the founding of the United Nations. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. So there you have it. But I think the the board is trying to... Uh, well, let me ask you. Do you think this is a safe choice for the board, or given the scandals? Well, I'm sure they thought it was safer than Duke Ellington, since <laughs> evidently the Pulitzer <laughs> board didn't think jazz was music at this time. Right. I don't know what they were doing. So maybe they thought, well, well, we'll go the opposite direction yeah, and go into really hardcore academic, atonal, abstract music. Mm-hmm. Maybe they thought, just swing the pendulum the other way. In fact, go to someone who completely, as Leslie Bassett said in interviews, was not interested at all in what was going on with the radio. No, no. And you, you did a little bit of reading and looking at, about, looking at what, how the award affected Bassett or what his views on music were. Uh, they're kind of unusual. They are unusual. I, th- I think it's worth reading this because it kind of gives a sense of the place of the Pulitzer and how it's going to be changing as we move into the 60s and the 70s and how people are going to be conceptualizing it. So in an interview, Leslie Bassett was asked, what did the Pulitzer do for you? And he said, well, it brought me a better salary at the <laughs> University of Michigan, which was nice. But it didn't bring as many performances of the variations itself as you would have thought. You would have assumed that the orchestral piece that wins the Pulitzer Prize would then be used. In fact, my publisher did send the score around to a lot of orchestras somewhat later because it wasn't published right then. But it hasn't had as many performances as you would have expected, and I found that disappointing. I talked with Michael Colgrass not too long ago, who we'll talk about in Mm -hmm. about 20 episodes. He's also a winner. (laughs) And he was complaining that his Pulitzer Prize orchestral piece had not been played a second time, or at least not more than once, until it was done by Louisiana State University when he was there as a guest composer two or three years ago. And he found this strange, a piece which presumably is considered good, isn't immediately grabbed by orchestras. I think there's a certain amount of promotional things that have to be done, and if you have agents and publishers who are very aggressive in this regard, and feel they can invest throwing away most of the scores, then I think maybe there's some chance of it. But it's very touchy business. But it has made a lot of difference, in fact, because when you go to a town and you're discussed or comments are made by local newspapers, they all know it's the Pulitzer Prize. So they give it coverage. Hmm. So kind of mixed. So it's a, pre- yeah. it's a prestige thing. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what it begins to be understood as is, oh, you're a Pulitzer winner. Not here's your great Pulitzer piece, but you happen to be a winner because I can't think in my lifetime of someone playing the variations for orchestra by Leslie Bassett. No. And it's a little bit of the John LaMontagne situation too. Remember he, uh, he said it was made great at the time, but it really didn't propel his career it sort of just kept it going, gave him some prestige. Like you said, gave him yeah, some notoriety. but there are no legs to it, it for the piece itself. Right, right. The piece. Yeah. How many times have we ever heard the piano concerto by John LaMontagne again? Almost never. So, and we've seen that some composers got the award basically as a lifetime achievement award. Right, right. You've been a great composer. Have a Pulitzer. This may not be your best piece. And I think we'll see that happening again and again as we move forward in the years. Definitely. 
All right, so Dave, is this piece a hit or a miss for you? Uh, I'd say it's a big miss. Uh, <laughs> it, Not just a miss, a big miss. A big miss, yeah. I just, maybe I'm, I don't know. I just don't have the attention span for a 23-minute abstract orchestral piece that's based on color. I think it's interesting. I like some of the sounds. Uh, I I was into it for, you know, five six minutes and then it's like okay well now i've got a slow turgid section here so uh, <laughs> it slows down and that same kind of sound quality so uh, unfortunately i think it would have to be a miss for me how about you i don't know if it's a big miss nah. but it's a miss okay <laughs> no, I'll, i take that back i don't want to be so harsh I'll, no no you're <laughs> on the record now i know no but the uh, I, I agree that it's not it's not something that i'm going to put on and seek out when I was listening to it, it was very easy to, oh, look, an email came in and drift away <laughs> or because I just wasn't as grabbed by the direction of the music. I was like, that's an interesting sound. But then we sat in that sound for a couple of minutes and then we'd have a new sound. We sit in that sound for a couple of minutes. So I didn't have the kind of propulsion that really would grab me and pull me through the piece. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would I would have to agree. I mean, the some of the reviews well of course this is in the score so the reviews are very positive but uh it basically agrees with what we say that it's it's uh like the shimmering sounds the uh color orchestral colors wide range of colors uh piling up layers of tone color pointillistic th- those are beautiful yeah 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 absolutely there's some really beautiful sections yeah the difference between the, the variations in much of the serial and pointillistic music that has appeared since the death of Webern is that Bassett has something distinct to say and surpassing skill in saying it. Hmm. So pretty positive for that time. But uh, yeah, for me, I don't know. Uh, any, I don't think I want to listen to a, a, just a 20-minute, 23-minute orchestral piece by just about anybody. That's it's a little long for one one movement of something. So, oh well, what can you do? <laughs> what can you do? Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about Leslie Bassett. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HPulitzers for links between episodes. And then finally... Join us for our next episode. We'll continue to trace this shift in winners that happened late 1960s with Leon Kirchner's Quartet No. 3. Until then, keep listening. Mm-hmm.